Blog Talk Radio. Topic. As a matter of fact, today I think we have a topic that is kind of interesting and uh, significant for a lot of people. As we've talked before on this show, uh, uh, anywhere the studies vary, but anywhere from about 25 to about 35 percent of American women will expect, experience domestic violence. About one in four women will experience dom- uh, sexual assault in their lifetime. These are traumas, and uh, if you count the miscellaneous trauma that occurs to all of us as we go through life, that's a lot of trauma. And so a big part of, of what we talk about is how to deal with that trauma. What do we do about it? How do we react to it? And today we're going to have a, a guest who uh, not only uh, is familiar with uh, the uh, uh experience of trauma, particularly domestic violence, but he's also uh, instrumental uh, in organizations that help deal with it, and he's going to talk with us today about sharing your story. Brian, welcome. Thank you. So happy to be here. Thank you. Brian, how do you say your last name? Is it Pinero or Panero? Or? It's, it's Panero. It's Panero. Panero. Okay. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Tell us a little bit about your background, and how did you come to be an officer at the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Yeah, well, I've, I've been in social services work since uh, for about 15 years. I actually started off in children's shelter work, uh, emergency shelters, moved into investigations with child protective services, juvenile probation, and then along the way uh, started working part-time at the National Domestic Violence Hotline um, as an advocate. And from there, as we, we moved into teens and young adults and launched our program in 2007, Love is Respect, which focused on teens and young adults 13 to 24, uh, moved into a, a leadership position and have been very fortunate now to be able to oversee both programs and just the success both, you know, of our call centers and our online growth through chat and text. Okay. All right. So how did you get to what you're doing with the National Domestic, Domestic Violence Hotline? You know, I I, I kind of came into the work. Um, it was really just kind of a, a part time job, and I I think that when I had moved to Austin um, originally, I you know it was a job that still allowed me to help people, which I had been doing previously. And you know, I I think what happened was is I, I took this job, and I I thought I knew domestic violence. I thought I knew what was happening, and I just really actually realized by being a part of this work of, of how how ignorant I was before. I remember going into homes for uh, child protective services and just seeing like women who were being in an abusive situations. And then, you know, if their children got involved, I, I had no sympathy for her. Just, well, that's her own fault. She should have left. And just yep. through the training and hearing those voices, I just really realized just how difficult and how wide affecting that this uh, issue is. And it affects women and men and families. And just, it's just something I think I just really developed a passion for and, and have just continued to be a part of this work. Yeah, you know, one of the things in 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 my evolution as a um, a person who works uh, in the with the domestic violence issues, um, I just didn't have a clue how it worked. The whole dynamic of domestic violence, and I remember as a young woman saying, "Well, anybody raises a hand to me, that's it. I'm I'm out of right. there." Um, you know, and then as you learn more, you realize, wait a minute, that's really easy to say. <laughs> that's, that's really right. easy to say because, uh, you know, there's there's no barrier to your saying that. But if you're actually living through that and you have children or you have somebody threatening your life or you have some, you know, you've you've been the frog in the hot water getting there. And, you know, it is so much different uh, when you actually see how this all works and and the insidiousness of it. And the other thing that I've noticed is, uh, in my evolution, is how you start peeling away layers. You peel away layers to some of our social problems, you know, homelessness. That's right. You know, um, economic problems, welfare, blah, blah, blah. You keep peeling away those layers and you're going to find domestic violence. It seems to be an underlying cause or contributor, anyway, to so many of the social problems that we're addressing higher up in that, in that, that 
help me out with my verbiage here. Um, it, it seems like, you know, we want to address homeless, homelessness. We want to address, you know, welfare issues, blah, blah, blah. Right. So we attack those head on instead of peeling back those layer, layers and saying, whoa, wait a minute, there's a commonality here. Um, Absolutely. So anyway, I think. I think Joe Biden, when he was actually the last time he visited the hotline, and he was just talking about how much of homelessness is women. It is easier to be on the street with their children yep. than it is to be in an abusive home. And yeah. it's just, it's, it. Yeah. I just don't. I think you're exactly right. People don't really realize that that domestic violence is such a huge factor in so many of the issues that plague our society and our citizens. Yeah, it is. And I know I uh, was a, a speaker at a fundraiser for. A, um, an organization that provides uh, interim housing for women who have been incarcerated, and uh, in my 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 talk for their their uh, program, their their uh, it was a community event. I mentioned that when I go to the the shelter, I always ask how many people here have experienced domestic violence, and mm. over all of my time going there, I had yet to have a hand not go up, and I mentioned wow. that my in my speech, and afterwards, the chairman of the board came over to me, and she said she never knew that, never knew that. It had mm-hmm. never crossed their minds that there was something underneath this issue that they didn't even recognize. So, yeah, I agree. I agree with you. There, there's just so much to this issue, and it's so easy when you've not experienced the issue or been around someone who has experienced the issue to be dismissive and um, um, try to simplify it uh, as a, a problem of so it, it's it's like telling people they're overweight that it's all about self control, you know. Right. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Exactly. You know, yeah. easy, easy to say, you know. Easy to exactly. say. Um, well, okay, we've explored that, and that's a whole show. Uh, <laughs> but we, but today we want to talk about victims and telling their stories. One of the things that I've noticed is that whenever a woman, and I always uh, say it's kind of like being hit by a truck. After you've been hit by the truck and you've been hauled to the hospital and you've gotten your medical care and you're back home and da-da-da-da, and then all of a sudden you go, what the heck happened there? And mm-hmm. you want to try and figure out what it was that happened. And I, mm-hmm. think, I, I think that must be part of the importance of telling the story for anyone, not just domestic violence, but for anyone who's been through a traumatic event. Problem with that is is that people don't want to hear your story. That's right. That's right. You know, um, I mean, I I remember hearing a woman talking about a very traumatic divorce situation that she had uh, involving lots of physical violence and lots of... of, um, uh, threats and and danger, and saying something in the story, and some man who was in the, our small group saying, "Well, you've got to let that go." You know, my wife and I had a very contentious divorce two years ago, and now we're the best of friends. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and I thought, "Whoa, how to how to kill a whole string of birds with one shot?" Exactly. You know, I mean, not only is he dismissing the danger she was in, not only is he telling her her story isn't worth hearing and minimizing her experience, he's also thinking that he understands, uh, you know, comparing her life-threatening experience to his, you know, divorce with a woman he is now best friends with. Mm -hmm. Nobody Mm -hmm. who who goes through a divorce with uh, domestic violence, especially severe domestic violence, is best friends. (laughs) That's right. No. So here we have, you know, this need, or at least apparent need, and I do have, I have done a little bit of research, and I know that there is, in fact, a psychological uh, benefit and reason for telling the story. Um, so not only do we have this need to tell the story, but we have people who don't want to hear it and people who minimize it. Have you encountered that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I think as I've done this work more and more, you, you begin, it's impossible, you're going to talk about the work you do. And I think that in talking about the work I do, I've had more and more friends and their wives or their, fr- or their friends have begun to open up about like, you know, when I was in college, I dated this guy and I just remember that this happened. Oh my God, why am I even saying this? I've never said this before. Or you'll have those people who inevitably will just, you know, after your conference or you walk up from a speaking engagement and say, like, I just need to tell you this, that I'm a survivor and I got out. It's just so important that someone know that I made it. And I think that, you know, for so many people, it's the chance 
I think there is something in saying that I survived and that I want someone to acknowledge. And I think the, on the other side, when, when we hear that or when people share that, a lot of it is just, A, I think we don't know what to say. I think we feel like we have to uh, not be – I think some people are afraid to ask questions or to, you know, say, like, I'm so happy for you because they, they don't know what to say. And I think then there's some people who just want to say – how in the heck did you even get in that to begin with? And why did you, you know, this is not the person that I know. And I, I think it's because it's scary because it can happen to anyone. And I think sometimes when we hear those stories, a lot of the fear is, is that it's a lot closer than we want to admit. It's not in poor communities. It's not in communities of color. I mean, it's happening in the richest parts of our country. It's also happening in the middle class. And I think when we hear the story, a lot of people don't understand that like, this is something that people have had their entire lives shaped as a result or the new love that they're in, like how much that they've had to fight through that and trying to recover. Or just, I think the biggest thing is just, just that they've been able to carry this story for so long by themselves. And it's, yeah. a, I think it's, it's, we have to be comfortable and be okay with the fact that, you know, when people share things with us, it's okay to say like, you know, thank you for sharing. That's amazing. And, you know, I'm so glad that you felt in this moment to share it with me, but also, because there are people who I think also are then free themselves by hearing someone else talk about it, to think about their relationships and maybe have an opportunity to talk about some th- either times when they were in unhealthy situations or possibly even in abusive situations. Absolutely. You know, Brian, I need to give out our call-in number. Our phone number, if you'd like to call and join us, is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378. 378-0430. Call us if you have a question for Brian or if you'd like to share some of your story with us. We'd love to hear from you. 646-378-0430. If you don't want to talk on the phone, we also have a chat line that you can get to. And uh, just click on that chat line on the website and join us and um, uh, let's let's explore this. I, I'm learning a lot already. I do know um, basically from a couple of classes that I had in my in my PhD program, Brian, about the physiological benefits of telling the story. I know with uh, people who ex- uh, experience traumatic events, if they can get them to uh, formulate their narrative within certain, um, uh, I mean, there are certain components that have to be there, but basically they can help alleviate or eliminate Mm-hmm. The chances of PTSD after a traumatic event. And that's why, uh, you know, when you see in the news or something happens, there's a school shooting, for example, and then the psychologists flock to the school and they're providing all this report. That's part of the reason why um, that that they're doing that, because if, you know, I mean, it's it's like brain physiology. If we can get mm-hmm. uh, people who have experienced trauma to formulate the narrative um, within certain parameters, then their brain can continue to function in a normal way. If we don't, there's a likelihood, and and everybody who knows people who've suffered from PTSD, there's a likelihood that PTSD will occur. And basically what that means is that there are changes in your brain, permanent changes in your brain, in the way your brain processes. So telling the story isn't just some sort of vanity for people who have experienced trauma. It's an important thing that will help them with, uh, you know, uh, uh, illness and, and physiological problems down the road. So I, I don't think we can minimize that, but we do have problems hearing other people's stories. Why do we do that, Brian? Can you Have you experienced that where people just don't want to hear it sometimes? Well, yeah, and I think that a lot of it is is that people feel like that's, that's so personal, that's not my business. Or I think also some people just, I think some people are just uncomfortable with somebody sharing something and then being like, well, what am I supposed to say now? Am I supposed to, am I supposed to say thank you? Am I supposed to ask questions? Or what if I just don't know what to do? You know, and I think that um, the other part I really think is, is that people, uh, I think people just don't want to admit to themselves that, you know, I've had this person and maybe I didn't know what was going on. Maybe I didn't know what was happening, especially when we have those close personal relationships. Uh, you know, we, we sometimes have a, a, a problem trying to make it about us, you know, like, you know, how do I respond or how do I talk about it? Instead mm-hmm. of just being comfortable, I think, with just listening to someone and then understanding that, that for them, like, this is a moment, you know, this is a moment to share. This is a moment to give a piece of me. Um, and, and I think even for myself as a male, and I think this is where I suffer, I have so many of my friends that, 
uh, you know, before I think I really started working in social services and working this work, you know, sharing things that happened to me, I was always afraid about my, the judgment that would come. And what I think you find out is, is that a lot of people really aren't there to judge you. I think a lot of it's just that a lot of people, they don't have real conversations. We don't have those moments where we just talk and we deepen our friendships or we deepen those moments with a stranger or somebody. Um, and I think the reaction is, is just to sit there and to, and to be witness is enough. You know, and I think a lot of people just don't realize that. Just to sit there and share that moment. And like you said, you're releasing that toxin out of the body. I think when you say stuff out loud, it becomes real. And I also think that a lot of it, too, is when we are, when someone shares stuff with us, we have to also then think, what else in my life or who else in my life could have experienced this? You know, I, I am now educated. I now realize that, some, that these types of things happen to people. And I think a lot of people are afraid, too, because they're wondering who else in my life has experienced. And we know just like the statistics we talk about one and four. I mean, when we're in a room with five people, there are people who have experienced domestic violence. And I think that's scary to a lot of people. Yeah. Or... Um, I think that that you know it might be something that hits home, but That's right. somebody, but the listener might not be ready to share or might not be willing to share, and so you know I, I think that a lot of times when when people react to our stories, um, I think that as you said, it's a it's 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 from a selfish, and I'm not necessarily meaning necessarily meaning that as as a negative thing, but I mean that's how we mm-hmm. all do. We look at life through our own filters and what we've created in our lifetimes, and uh, I think sometimes that there, there's that whole issue of victim blaming. You know, if I can make it something she did or she didn't do, then I'm safe because I'm mm-hmm. not going to do that. Um, so I, I almost, you know, I, I used to get really angry with people um, who did the victim gl- blaming. And now I literally say, you know, I look at them with sympathy and I say, it's okay. I understand you just want to make yourself feel safe. And it's amazing so how many people, <laughs> you know, people go, no, no, it's not about that. We well, yeah, it is. It's okay. We all want to feel safe. And, and so if you can make it her problem and, and not a universal problem that you might be exposed to, then you, you're safe. You feel safe. And, and that's okay. We all want to feel safe. I mean, it, and it's uh, so exactly people's reactions to that response on my part as opposed to when I used to get angry or try to educate them or whatever, uh, and they would just, like, close down. Um, with this approach that I'm using, it's like they leave the doors open and then they become kind of defensive, like, no, no, it's not that, it's not that. Well, yeah, it's okay. You know, it's okay. We we all want that, you know. <laughs> well, and, you know, and I think we just live in a society in which people, something had to cause that, right? It just doesn't happen. We don't, That's you know, there, you had to warn something. You know, see, it goes back to the same thing, too, what we do with the rape culture. It's just like you had to have been wearing something. You had to have been out exactly. after the you, know, you You should have known the warning signs when you saw this guy. Like It just doesn't – because you're right, and I think that when people get challenged in that way, they, they do – a lot of times when people say you're being victim-blaming, and they, the way you're talking about it I think is really interesting because it is. It's, it's, something has to comfort us in that moment because in that moment I think we're trying to make sense of a lot. So I actually like the way that you're, you kind of handle that. Yeah, because I'm I'm not challenging. It's kind of like I, I read once uh, that if you see uh, uh, some sort of inappropriate uh, response from a parent to a child, you know, bordering bordering on the abusive and stuff, that you should never just go up to them and challenge them and tell them not to do that or da da da, you know, that kind of thing, um, because it sets up all those defenses and the person won't listen to you. But what mm-hmm. you should do instead is say. It's really hard being a parent, isn't it? It's really right. challenging these things, you know. And and I think it's the same kind of an approach because you're not putting people immediately on the defensive. They're not putting their walls up, saying, "Oh, oh here this this person's going to challenge me. This person's going to, you know, criticize me or whatever." Instead, you're saying, "You know, we're human. We're all human, and I recognize that you're human too." But at the same time, letting them know that that's just not really you know, what what's going on here. You know, their their right. explanation for it really isn't an appropriate one. So I've I've used that approach uh, a lot and um it, it opens discussion. It really opens discussion. Mm-hmm. And, um so hopefully, you know, I'm I'm do, you know, you we all do our little our little our little part. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> so that's, that's my exactly little exactly right. <laughs> that's my little part. Well Brian, tell me how your organization works. 
Well, absolutely. Um, so the National Domestic Violence Hotline came as a result of the Violence Against Women's Act uh, when it was launched, uh, and the legislation went through, and it mandated that there had to be a national hotline. Um, our organization actually started out with the Texas Council on Family Violence um, when it was first, when the grant was awarded to us. And over the time, we've taken over 3 million calls uh, that, we've, that we've received from not just people who are victims, but also friends and family members. And so for over 20 years, we've been taking phone calls. People contact us uh, confidentially in crisis to ask questions to get information, sometimes be connected to a local domestic violence shelter or resource. And sometimes people just call us because they're in the process and they're changing their safety plan or they're trying to figure out a way to tell a family member after they've left the abusive relationship or just in recovery is, I think, another thing that we really help uh, people. The other thing that we were able to do is, is when we launched our Love is Respect, our teen and young adult programs, we actually launched chat. Um, so it's online services have become one of the biggest things for our organization. And we learned a lot with Love is Respect over the past eight years and that many, many people are now okay. choosing to go Brian, on. Brian, I'm going to interrupt you because we're, our, our connection is getting a little gravelly here. So I just okay. want to make sure that people get the information. It's um, The program is called Love is Respect, and mm-hmm. you launched that uh, in order to accomplish what? Well, we were trying to reach teens and young adults because of that, because one of the things we realized is that um, young adults were contacting us and that they were saying, hey, I'm in the same situation as an adult, but my situation is a little bit different. And so as these young people contacted us, we realized that we needed to find a way to talk about their issue as it was unique to them. You know, they went home, and but their abuser wasn't at home, or they were at school and they needed a different kind of safety planning. So when we launched this program, we also looked at the data that the Pew Internet and American Life Project had shown was that teens and young adults were utilizing online chat rooms and chat and instant messenger. So we actually launched our program along with chat, and what we've seen now is that this is the number one way that teens and young adults are contacting our program eight years later. Um, Online chat is the 24-hour program that we now offer for Love is Respect, in which you can come in and talk to a young adult, also 18 to 24. And then we've also launched text messaging, which is another way that we've tried to reach young adults. Um, from that, we realized that we had to turn chat on for the National Domestic Violence Hotline because as we were launching chat, we also realized how many adults were now choosing to be on these channels. Um, and the growth of smartphones, uh, the move, I think, when we look at Yelp and the ability to search for information online, people make decisions now by going online. Yeah. And the chance to reach out and talk to a live person through chat to decide, do I want to try this service on? Do I want to make a decision? Digital services has become, I think, the biggest way that people are going to continue to contact us. But also, we do think in the next five years that it, the digital services account for about a quarter of all of our traffic. We do think we're going to move to half and possibly as many phone calls we will receive in digital contacts as well. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And, and you know, I was just reading this thing the other day. Some, um, I, I, I think I mentioned that I'm in school, and, and one of, the, uh, one of my uh, members of my cohort said is a young person, and she said something about old people don't go online. And I said, are you kidding? And so I thought, is she really serious? Because old people do go. I go online. Absolutely, <laughs> you know? that's right. And uh, so I did a little research, and Pew Research, which, you know, is a reputable research organization, um, said that... I I think, and I'm probably going to massacre the statistic because I can never remember them, but Pew indicated that um, half of Facebook, yeah, it's half of Facebook uh, users are over 50. That's right. That's right. You know, so, I mean, I mean it, it's not well, just young people anymore, you know. I mean, it's it's uh, mature people who are also relying on online services. And so, yeah, terrific. So what has been the the result of Love is Respect? Well, I think we've done a fantastic job with Love is Respect. I mean, we're averaging almost 5,000 contacts just through chat alone uh, and then about another 1,500 contacts a month uh, through phone. And we're talking to a lot of young adults that we're, we're seeing that they're coming to us and they're asking questions about how to leave relationships, how to get out. But the biggest thing that I think Love is Respect has done and I think it's been fantastic for domestic violence as well, is we started talking about healthy and unhealthy relationships. And from, I think, love is respect, we learned that we had to have more information that helped people not just talk about abuse, but also talk about things that didn't feel right early on in the relationship. 
And so if you actually go to our website and you go to Love is Respect and you click down underneath uh, Relationship 101, you'll find all kinds of information from consent to how to trust is setting boundaries. And from this, we've actually seen that a, one of the largest groups that actually contacts us are people who are asking about healthy relationships. And as this group has gotten older and they've moved towards NDVH services and we've talked to more and more adults through Love is Respect who like our brand and contact us, uh, we've found out that healthy relationships are something that adults are wanting to talk about. I always tell the story that I, I had a group call me and they were and they said, hey, we'd love for Love is Respect to come out and just do a presentation about healthy relationships. And I was like, absolutely. Is it high school, college? They said, no, no, it's 55-year-old recovery. They're starting their lives over, and they're realizing that I have to change everything and that my relationship and the type of relationship that I'm in has a huge deal as far as what kind of healthy life that I live. And so we've actually begun to spend more time adding content to the National Domestic Violence Hotline under healthy relationships. We talk about it. We're tracking it on the hotline. And that's another huge group that's growing um, through the hotline. I think that's directly attributed to love and respect and just kind of talking about that intervention um, and prevention into relationships that when you can say, hey, like everybody wants wants love and everybody actually wants to believe that their relationship is good and that's such an easy way to start talking, not just to uh, victims but also to perpetrators, talking to men, talking to anybody because everybody wants a healthy relationship. Yeah. And how do we know what it is? I mean, most of us, the only relationship that we really know is what we grew up with in our family of origin um, and then relationships that we've happened to live in personally. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of us have never had the opportunity to live at, at any kind of extensive level with any other family. I mean, nobody right. got to live with Huxtables, you know what I mean? I, 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 That's right. Uh, of course, I'm not. You know, there there goes my gold standard. The Huxtables were my gold standard, and no, now with no. uh, yeah, you know, oh no, there goes my gold standard. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, we don't know what anything else is except what we've lived, really. Um, I mean, we can we can hear stories, we can read stories, blah blah blah, but we really don't know unless we've had an opportunity to live in it. And that's right. You know, so I can understand why that would be really, really an important thing. So how does the love is respect, how does that fit in with our conversation about telling the story? Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things that when I think about love is respect and the National Domestic Violence Hotline is, is how many people that actually work at our organization that have been victims themselves you know, and have had experiences. And, you know, even in our training, it, it is amazing about the number of young men and women who actually go through our training and actually come out and say, like, you know, through this training, I actually realized that I'm a victim and I kind of want to talk about it. And it comes up in the training and it comes up in discussions later. And telling the story, I think, uh, in those moments I've seen is just the power of how some people, young and old, the ability to be able to talk about their relationship and talk about what has happened. And being able to be on the other end with someone when they do have someone who comes in to ask for help and say, like, you know, I just feel like I'm the only one. And to have that other person be like, I know what you're going through. I've been there too. And so you can hear this, that, uh, that release of like there's somebody on the other end who knows what it feels like, that knows that I'm not alone. And I think the biggest thing is, is that with even with young adults, the importance of knowing that I'm not alone, that it's not uh, something that only happens to me and no one else has this happen in their relationship. And, you know, that carries its way into adult conversations as well. Being in a relationship or a marriage for 30 years and just thinking that this man or this woman that I've been with for my entire life, uh, for, 30, for 30 years of my life, and then having to realize slowly that there's something not right and eventually I'm the only one that this is happening to. And hearing that one person, maybe in a casual conversation or online or watching TV and someone talking about I was a victim and I overcame it and just realizing, you know what, I'm not alone. I can change. I can get help. I can change the situation and I can reach out. I think that's the power that Love is Respect and the hotline both have is that people come and they and they tell their story and they change lives. Yeah. And it is, as we said before, it is important to tell the story. I think maybe previous generations, like maybe like the World War II generation or something, they really didn't tell their stories. They they stayed mm -hmm. taciturn and they would tell a little bit. But you didn't have, um, you know, uh, uh, masses of people explaining what they lived through and da-da-da-da. Uh, it, it wasn't 
acceptable back then, or it wasn't fashionable. I'm, I'm assuming it wasn't acceptable, or more people would have done it. Um, but now, as we learn more and we realize that there is value in telling that story, that's right. I think a lot of those barriers to uh, you know kind of spilling your guts has, has disappeared, and we realize we can learn from each other. Um, instead of what's happening, you know, with with domestic violence behind closed doors, you know, what happens at home stays at home, and you know, uh, nobody, you don't tell the neighbors about it, and blah blah blah. With the the sharing of the story and the telling of the story, those barriers are coming down, and not only is it helping victims, it also is educating the people around us about, right. you know, what can go on. And then, you know, as you mentioned with with the the internet, I mean, you can't if you go online and 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 Google domestic violence. First of all, probably two thirds of what comes up is fathers' rights stuff, but of the other stuff that comes up, so much of it is personal stories. I I I've often felt that um, we have a, a compulsion to to share our stories. Even if it's only in our journals or whatever, we there's something about us as human beings where we want we want our experience to be something other than what we keep bottled up inside. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I'm thinking right now of, of recently we had, uh, and you were talking about how love and respect also fits into this. Is we had a young woman. We actually had an event in Dallas this past fall, and and this we have an advocate, and she's this beautiful woman who has done a wonderful job of just being a great advocate and, and volunteered to tell her story about abuse that happened to her. So we go on stage. We've got about 600 rowdy high school kids in an auditorium talking, and, you know, we we try to engage them. We try to talk to them, and the adults are on the stage, and they're talking, you know, and I get up and I talk a little bit about what to look for. This young woman comes to the stage as her part, and she talks about the importance of the work that she does. She talks about her experience as an advocate, and then she says, and I wish that these services would have been there when I was going through this. And she starts talking about how the day that he that he first started hurting her and what that felt like. And you could hear the entire audience just stop. And all eyes were locked on her. Almost a pin could drop. And just her sitting there saying, I know you're out there. The statistics show it that if you're sitting out there right now and you're going through this, I want you to know that you're not alone. I've been there. And I got away, and I got help. And then afterwards, just the number of young women and men who just crowded her to come up and talk to her, just to be around her, to shake her hand, to spend time with her, wanting to hug her. You just saw that in the power of one person talking to 600 young adults in an auditorium, just how the the silence that just was able to take over that room because of sharing her story. And then the people who did come up to her and said, like, thank you. I never thought that I could come up to someone and say that I feel like I'm in the same thing. Like, how can I get help? It's incredibly powerful sharing that story. And I mean, I think also in watching when she walked away, when we went back to the car of just her, of just, you can see she's just on this high of like, again, the power of my story, it did good. Like, even in this horrible thing that happened to me, I'm able to do something to help other people through her words and her experience. It's unbelievably powerful to watch it happen. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is an amazing thing. Um, One of the things that, and I'm going to be critical here, so just forgive me, but one of the things that always annoys me, as much as I support domestic violence uh, uh, prevention programs and and organizations to uh, help uh, victims, etc., one of the things that just always annoys me is how for the fundraiser, I always say they, they drag out and dust off the victim to go up and talk about her sad story in order to right. solicit more funds. And and it's like, I know that that's a tried and true method, but it just annoys the heck out of me. It's like, right. in the first place, it's it's kind of, you know, I mean, I don't know. Why do I feel so bad? I, I just don't like that, Brian, because it doesn't seem to fit in with the the healing nature of telling the story, I guess. It's more of a right. uh, of a, a marketing of the story, which is okay. I mean, I'm I'm the queen of marketing the story. I wrote a book, you know, <laughs> years of, years ago, um, called "Why Doesn't You Just Leave?" Available on Amazon. Um, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that you know uses real women's stories, and and I I. I you know, used academic research to support those stories so that the reader would not 
think that, you know, this was a unique situation, but in fact that this is a representation of a situation that happens to many, many women. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm no stranger to marketing it, um, but I, I don't know. Why, am I, why do I feel so awful about those, those, that, that dusting off of the victim to tell her story? You know, I think it goes back to the same thing that we always feel. It's just like, are we exploiting this person? Are we taking this story? And, you know, I think we've even dealt with it when we've had experiences with media or we've had fundraisers or funders who say, like, can you get us a victim? And, you know, at this age and this, can you get uh, where they've had, you know, has the where it's been physical abuse? And, you know, and saying, like, well, actually we have somebody who's really passionate about doing this and they like to do it because it has an effect, and, but their situation is more emotional. Yeah, but do you actually have someone who is more physical abuse? I think that that's the point is that like when I think when we actually have victims who have to come forward and their face is used to show just the extremeness that we have to have in our society sometimes to say that something's real instead of just realizing the, you know, there are things, there's financial abuse, there's emotional abuse, there's so many other kinds of abuse that we don't see that happen. Um, I think we just automatically feel that there's just something about like, that people, we don't always believe that people sometimes want to tell the story and that they say, like, no, I want to do this because I know it helps. I want to do this because this is part of my journey. We're not always able to offer that backstory um, when they come out and they talk about it. But, I, you know, I, I think it's important sometimes to just remember that organizations put a lot of effort into thinking about, and if they're smart and they're good, they think about how they put a victim in a situation. And have they run through the scenarios? Have they said, are you prepared for this? Have they grilled them a little bit about, like, if they talk about this, are you ready? Nobody that really cares about a victim in an organization is going to put somebody out there. But I, I think it's just kind of the natural thing for us. Is, is it exploitive is, I think, the biggest thing that always comes in our mind when we see that. Well, I think it also has, for me, it has to do with the fact that, you know, most coercive abuse, mm-hmm. um, it's not the broken bones and the black eyes. But um, we, I actually had a um, um, researcher, I can't remember what university she was from, but she ha- did research on the effectiveness of domestic violence advertising. And much as you would expect, um, the most effective advertising by whatever methodology she was measuring effectiveness uh, was the... Um, the black eye and the and the swollen face, mm-hmm. you know, that That's that right. image uh, was was more effective than anything that demonstrated any kind of coercive control. Um, and yeah, okay, I can see that because I mean, who wants to see you know the the big black eye and the sob story, you know, that kind of thing. But it's coercive control that is the most prevalent. Mm-hmm. And probably the most destructive, if you look at the studies on long-term effects of domestic violence on the victims, do you feel that this telling of the story is useful for, I'm trying to pick my words here, is more useful for other victims and for people who need to learn about domestic violence than are the ads that show the black eyes and the, and the physical violence? I guess well, wow. I, I guess what I'm saying mm. is is that you know you can if you tell a story you can you can share more about a situation and you can go more into the coercive control kinds of things. If mm-hmm. you are just showing the shock value of the black eye and everything, then you re- you're reinforcing the notion that domestic violence is only hitting. Yeah. Well, I, I think both are important. I think, you know, I can remember being in an apartment and hearing the screaming next door and the yelling and not knowing, like, well, that's not my business. And maybe maybe that, uh, you know, and I remember that commercial where you were hearing the yelling and the screaming. and It kind of made me think, like, no, I do have an obligation. I think that, um, unfortunately, you know, that's different than seeing a black eye. I mean, we don't always see the black eye. But when we see the black eye, we're immediately alerted to that. Um, you know, I I think that... We need a little bit of both, unfortunately. I think that there are a lot of people who just don't live in environments or situations or ask questions in which they're even going to know that domestic violence exists, um, even though we know that there are people with us. So I, I think there's some important in raising the awareness that, hey, domestic violence is out there. I think if we're really going to stomp it out and put it out of our, our – not just of our society, of the existence that we have, we're going to have to also use the other side, which goes into the power and control that goes into talking about um, a lot of the, I think the Ray Rice video is a perfect example. Like we, we've seen the video, we've seen that happen so many times. 
Now the situation is what are we going to do next? What, what, what comes with that? What are we going to start teaching people about the other things that exist long before you get in the elevator and long before the black eye? And I think people are ready for that. I think those are the next stories that people want to hear. So it's, it's also about, I think, and even the times that we've spent in talking to creating a campaign and going forward is what are we doing to talk about the other things that happen, the other things that are going on, and how do we start talking about that? And I'm hoping now that as we now have more of a vocabulary, we have an understanding of domestic violence in the public consciousness, that we can start having those types of ads so we start talking about the other pieces or writing the stories that talk about the emotional abuse and the financial abuse. So that, that's kind of what I'm hoping that we've reached past that point of the shock value. We're actually here with that. Now we want to eradicate this from our society, and we're ready to hear the other stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's the future of storytelling for victims of trauma? Are we going to be, uh, you know, just last evening I was speaking with a friend, and she was talking about being at a social event just yesterday. And um, and she uh, she didn't tell the exact situation, but she did say that one of the people uh, at the party was sharing information, was telling stories, uh, a story or, you know, uh, and, and I inferred that it was a situation, maybe there was abuse or I don't know what, you know, so, something like that. And... My friend said that the entire that the woman was sharing too much, and um, that the entire group became very uncomfortable. Um, and I don't know the specifics of it, I, you know, but I I could envision somebody talking either about an incest situation or about a domestic violence situation, and I, that that whole family group being very uncomfortable mm-hmm. with that because I've seen mm-hmm. that before. Um, so what what are we doing? Are we changing the climate uh, for uh, that that not only allows a woman to feel free to tell a story, but also that allows the listeners to realize that it's okay to hear this story? I, I, what what do you see? I don't know. I guess I'm asking a sociological question, but do you? But do you have an answer for me? <laughs> well, I, well, I can I can try. Of course, I think that for me. Um, I think the thing is, is that we are now living in a society where we're we're sharing out to our periphery groups through our social media. We're talking about things that are important to us. We talk about uh, whether it's uh, something that happens in our local community or something that happens larger than that. And, and we're, I think everybody is checking into these areas in which that we we've seen things in our streams. We're seeing pictures. We're seeing what's happening. I think now is that we do know that there are things that happen in people's lives that are important to them beyond just what we see on face value when we actually walk into a room and we see them in person. Um, I think we are getting to a place, too, where we are asking more questions, you know, and we're, we're saying, like, hey, are you okay? Is everything all right? And that when we ask that question, I, I, I choose to believe that people are more and more comfortable with asking the question, are you okay, or, hey, what's wrong, uh, that when people do open up and they talk about it, but I would also like to think that as people are moving forward, storytelling is going to have to be something that we've always done throughout history. We've told the story of things that have happened, of how do we capture those stories and that we're not – maybe if we don't hear in the moment that those things can continue to be used digitally. How can we take somebody – we do that through our training right now where we have a panel of victims who actually sat down with great, with uh, some production that was donated, and they told their story. And this is used in every training class that we have. And it prepares everybody in our class for, like, I'm listening to this person. I'm seeing how they got on the other side. And what it does is it prepares them to listen to the next story, to understand that some, there is an outcome that can happen. And I think that we've got to find a way to make sure that if we're really going to start dealing with domestic violence, we're going to have to start talking about it. So how do we get that in health classes? How do we get that early on with youth and talking about things that have happened after the fact and, and, and how that they've been able to overcome it? So. I think part of it is also preparing young adults that this is part of just good health is being able to share stories, listen to stories, and be supportive of one another. So I do think that there's also ways just with so many digital ways that we can record stories and share stories and that we are more used to actually hearing what's happening in people's lives. And I'm I'm hoping that that's what will happen going forward. What... um the, and I'm going to bring up something here again, just because I, I you know, I, everybody seems to feel the need, or at least a lot of people seem to feel the need to share their story. 
But what happens when the story, I, I mean, I've seen books, I've seen articles, blah, blah, blah. But what happens when those are not well written? I mean, mm-hmm. is this picky or what? But I, I mean, I've read so many stories where I thought, oh, this is such. This story could be so moving. This story could be so beneficial for other people. But nobody's going to read it because it's so poorly written. Mm-hmm. Have you, well, or so poorly told. You know. Yeah. Uh, I guess you encountered that. The, well, I don't know if I've encountered it quite in that way, but I guess as I was thinking about it, I was like. Is the purpose of telling the story to help someone else or is the purpose of the story for however it did for me, you know? And I think that's the thing, too, is I'm sure there's tons of blogs in which people have written all all counts of trauma. And maybe they get looked at, maybe they don't get looked at. But I also think that sometimes for a victim or a survivor of any kind of trauma, it's an offering out to the world of saying, like, this is something that happened to me. This is something that I'm doing because it's part of my healing process. Um, And, you know, I think if one person reads it, and they get something from it, I who am I to say maybe this could have been written better because it could have been more mass-produced or put out there. I, I just think that that's, if a victim chooses to share however it's shared, um, you know, we we are also in a place, too, where I think as we go along and we share the story more, maybe we're able to get more in-depth about it, we're able to talk more, but I leave that to the victim to decide how they want their story to sound. And, you know, we, we can't always be able to say you know, it could have been better. It's, it's how they chose to share it, I guess, is what I would say. Yeah. So uh, in my mind, because I am a commercial writer, I guess I think, okay, but if you're not going to um, – I'm, I'm seeing it as a, two, as a two-way thing, that you put out the story, but then you get something back. And what you're saying is just putting out the story is enough, that that suits, that's all, that suits the purpose. And I the, think the for getting some people that is, yeah. is is not necessarily relevant. That brings well, us to I the th- question. I think that depends. I'm sorry. Okay. No, no, no. You go. Well, I just think it depends. I mean, I think that there are some people who are trying to figure out how to tell a story because I also think like there's still shame, and I think every single time that somebody has to go on stage and maybe that one person gives us gives a face, or like I'm always worried about how somebody will react. I'm sure that. For a lot of victims, that being able to tell the story in a way, and depending on who the audience is, I, I can only imagine for a victim uh, of a woman to walk into a room full of executive men and to share her story, just what would be going through her head to say that, or to share vulnerability with your children about this is what's happened to me. That you know, I think that we we put our story out there, we see how it's received, and maybe we don't want to share it again, or maybe we put it out there and then we see, you know what, I think my story could be more if I talk a little bit more in depth. I think that really is just up to the person telling the story and how they choose to sit there and produce their story based on how much they want to give or how little they want to give. Or based on why they're doing it. That's right. That's yeah, exactly right. I can see that. Yeah. I doubt, you know, your scenario where the woman would be, you know, in the boardroom sharing that story, outside of a social service organization, I think that would be death on wheels. I mean, I, I cannot envision a situation where a woman would share her story in that scenario. Um, you know, hope, uh, you know, I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but I can just picture that that just being a total disaster. So what I'm getting from this conversation is that uh, part of telling the story is just part of getting it off your chest, of your processing it. Part mm-hmm. of it is the reaction you get back and whether or not that's important. And part of it is also the safety issue. That's right. Are we safe to do that? And that's, that's where right. Love's Respect comes in because you've provided a venue where it is safe to do that. Well, but, and I think that even even telling the story of the first time, and I think Love's Respect and the National Domestic Violence Hotline, if someone chooses to come and say, I just want to say that this is what's happened. This is sometimes the first time that they have ever in their life said, I think my relationship is off or it's abusive. And depending how we receive them there is, and just saying, and I just can't tell you how many women just start crying when they say like, I, I believe you and just how that may just like, Oh my God, this person believes me. So I, I do think that it is how you get received. And, and it, depending on telling your story, when you're trying to get out, depending on your story, if you're being positioned to try to cause effect, or also I think putting your story out there because you know what? I have to do this. I have to do this because I need 
to say it out loud because for sometimes it's not real until it leaves the lips of your mouth and it becomes real and it's actually out there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it becomes part of you. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, I mean, we've been dealing with decades of where having been a victim of domestic violence was a, something shameful. Um, and so I would imagine that for many women, it's still perceived as a dangerous thing to, to get out there. Um, and that brings us to my next question, which is, well, there's a teller for a story, but there's a listener for a story. How do we as listeners process, react, uh, respond? Um, what do we do? What is, what is our role as a listener to a story? You know that that is a real that's that's a really good question because I think you know I'm thinking about when people have shared their story with me or even when I've shared a story or something that's happened to me. You know, um, I remember uh, and and for me when I've had some of the instances when I was much younger and like I said when I was doing those CPS investigations I just I had had this shaken baby that I just this child death and I just remember how much it was just too much for me and. I went home to my relationship and I was just saying like I had this really hard time with this thing happening today and just the reaction of like I just can't handle that. I just don't want to hear that and it just how much that just made me shrink inside of just I can't even say to somebody who I think is is there for me or can be there for me. And and just I, I, I started to keep stuff to myself for several years after that. And I and I think about that too, that if you're a victim and you're in a place in which you're so moved to want to take the risk, because that's what it is, right? It's a risk. I'm taking a risk to be vulnerable. I'm showing you my underbelly. I'm letting you see something that is so personal that I think the obligation for us is even if it's something that makes our toes curl or just makes us feel uncomfortable, it's just being quiet, just being quiet. And in that moment, you're sharing a moment with somebody and letting them share it. You don't have to have follow-up questions. You don't have to say anything other than to like, thank you for sharing that with me. You know, you're so brave. Just the act of sharing is brave. And I think sometimes that that is the one thing that people just need to hear is just thank you. And thank you for sharing with me. And it doesn't require a follow-up. It doesn't require exploration. Um, So I think that when we look at the times in which we were most heard is when someone just looks at us and they're just quiet and and they listen and they don't make it about them and what they can't handle, what they can't handle is just about being present. And uh, I just always go back to, I had a, a, a childhood friend who became a pastor. I remember one time he said, you know, the power is in the presence. Just being there and just being a part of that moment and just reflecting back and saying, you know, I had no idea. Thank you. Um, can be the most powerful thing that I think you can do for a victim. Yeah. Well, you know, for me, I, I mean, I'm a talker. I, I talk, I'm one of those people <laughs> that there's two seconds of silence. You know, I want to fill right. it. I mean, if, if you're a broadcaster, which I was for many years, you don't have two seconds of silence. That's you know. I mean, you you have to fill it, and mm-hmm. so for me to just sit back and listen is something that I am still learning and still working on. That you know what? I don't have to respond to everything I hear. Right. I don't have to pre- create a verbal response to something. Um, and and that I mean, there are some people that already know that. I I took many many years to learn it, and I'm still trying to implement it. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know what? We don't have to give a verbal response. We don't have to thrust and parry. We can just receive a package of information that somebody gives us and smile and say thank you. That's Um, right. And and that's tough for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is um, tough. It is because you want to feel that – I mean, I think it's just uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable when someone is bearing something of themselves. Because um, it's the fear of like, you know, what if I, what if I say the wrong thing, or what, you know, they're sharing this like, oh my God, like, am I going to have to? Are they going to cry? There is just really in just being a listener is just I think something that. And my mother used to tell me all the time. She, you know, people look at her and say, you know, uh, you're just you're just staring at me. And she said, no, I'm just listening to you, listening to people, and just being okay with silence. Uh, it's part of, I think, a healing process, too, of just, like, letting our words go out there, letting them sit and letting them be absorbed, not just in our ears, but through our heart, and letting that message sink in. And I think it's just really being heard. Well, and I think, but there is a difference between being silent and open and being silent and shutting somebody right. down. I mean, you can do both with no words. Um, that's, that's exactly right. 
so, you know, and I think anybody who shares a story about anything knows when they're being shut down. Um, most people, mm-hmm. you know, have have that, that radar that's, uh, you know, attuned enough so they know whether or not what they're saying is being accepted or welcomed, and then they shut up if it's not. Um, but that whole idea of vulnerability, do you think that that, making yourself vulnerable, do you think that that is part of the value of telling a story, is to feel safe enough to make yourself vulnerable again? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's also just connecting. Um, you, you know, you're right. To be vulnerable is to be left open for judgment or be left open for, you know, taking in, uh, having to, there's a process, I think, right? We don't just get to places where we walk around the street like, hey, I got a story to tell you this is what's happening to me. I mean, there's something that is established in that relationship or in that moment. Um, and I also think that part of, like, you know, in experiencing uh, and deciding to talk about your 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 trauma or what's happened to you is that there is something in that moment that you're transported back and talking about it, of being that person. And I think in telling it is recapturing a little bit of that power because one of the things I think associated, especially with domestic violence trauma, is just like the shame is just the the fact that you are in a relationship with someone that was exerting some form of power and control over you. And taking a little bit of that, that back and saying, like, look, this happened to me. This occurred in my life. I'm not there anymore. You know, I've overcome it. I've, I've, I've processed it. I've gotten to a place where now that I'm ready to share it with you is taking a little bit of that power back, I think, and what was taken away from them by that abusive partner. So I, I do think that it's about a little bit about what's kind of established, um, and of course, in the conversation between two people or whoever they choose to share it with. But a little bit out of it, too, is just like it's just reclaiming back that experience. Like, this is my experience that I am sharing. It's not something that, uh, that you know, uh, is being done against me. It's something that I'm now choosing to say, I'm sharing it with you. I am providing you with an insight into my life and in the hopes of also just connecting with the person across from me. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there is connection. I, I, I And I do think that, you know, there's a responsibility on the part of us as listeners, too. Um, to work on that That's and right. making sure that there is that connection rather than um, that that wall that can be established. And and I think that we all need to work on that. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I know I, know I do. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I think, and I think that, it's, even, it's even like listening, like, as being a domestic violence, I guess you would say, okay, it's my job. Sometimes I have to shut that off and just say, I'm just listening. I'm not Brian, who works at the National Domestic Violence Hotline. I'm just the person sharing it with me. And however we chose to get there, like, I have to remember, like, I don't need to check in on their safety. I don't need to do that. And the first thing I need to, need to do is just to really listen and, 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 and recognize that connection that's happening. Exactly. Exactly. Brian, I've had such a good time with this show. Um, I, I hope yeah. you enjoyed our conversation. Um, it, and, and I think, you know, I've, I've reinforced a few things that I've been thinking about before, and I've learned a couple new things in talking with uh, victims of trauma and hearing people who have been victimized by trauma. And uh, I appreciate uh, what you've done. Please give out the hotline number um, once more before we go. Absolutely. Uh, I'm just actually just the the number. Oh, crud. I'm sorry. Hello? I have it. It's 1-800-799-7233. I'm sorry. I was going to say you can also go to the hotline.org. You can actually access our chat services. They're actually on 7 a.m. to 2 a.m. And you can also speak to somebody 24-7, like, again, through the phones at 1-800-799-7233. Great. Brian, thank you. I always try to end our show with a quote, but before I do our quote, I want to let you know that I wrote notes about healthy relationships, and for some reason I've never done a show on healthy relationships. So email me afterwards and give me your suggestions for putting together a a program on healthy relationships, if you would. Fantastic. (laughs) Awesome. I'm looking for ideas. Um, And also... uh, um, you know, our show next week is going to be on the state of fatherhood. There was a big conference um, uh, earlier this year on the state of fatherhood in the world, and we're going to have uh, somebody who attended that conference and was instrumental in that conference be our guest next week. So join us next week. Meanwhile, ending our show with this quote from John Barth, who you may uh, recognize as an author, everyone is necessarily the hero of his own life story. 
And I think, for me, the telling of the story and the hearing of the story centers around that. We all need to feel that we are the hero, that we have overcome and that we have met challenges and that we have come out the better end of it. We all need to be the heroes of our own stories. And in order to be the heroes of our own story, we have to uh, tell our story for ourselves and we have to uh, have other people hear our stories. And hopefully we as listeners can reinforce that heroism. Thank you very much, Brian, for joining us. Again, love is respect. And the hotline, 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for joining us for Three Women, Three Women. 